0: Hello and welcome to another episode of The Uncover-Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Lee Kunle, and with me, as always, is Professor Nathan Radke.
1: And I'm with you because I'm also one of our co-hosts. Yes, you are. How long have we been doing this now?
0: Three years, maybe coming on to four. How
1: many episodes do we have?
0: Over 80.
1: Yeah, it's over 80. I'm starting to come to some, what you might want to call conclusions. Okay. This is all... I got a conclusion for you. Yeah, give it to me. I think that absurdities generate absurdities.
0: Oh, right. Okay.
1: And I'll, I'll explain. So uh, occasionally... I mean, that's
0: how we got 80 episodes into a, a yeah. podcast on conspiracies, yes, right? Yes,
1: because of the generation <laughs> of absurdities.
0: And we just keep finding more. Yeah. Everybody worries we're going to run out of content. But that
1: is not... You that is have not going no to idea
0: about all the stuff that we still have yet to talk about.
1: I am going to run out of life before we run out of Conspiracies, yeah. Yeah. This is what I was thinking the other day. There are some belief systems which within them contain just complete absurdities. And we've encountered these in our research. There are some things which are simply absurd and impossible. Mm -hmm. But there are belief systems in which those absurdities are important. The only way to maintain that absurdity, like when you're confronted with an absurdity, either you have to give up on that belief system or you're going to have to double down and figure out a way to protect it. The only way to protect an absurdity is with more absurdities. Uh, As an example, I was talking to someone the other day who argues that Joe Biden has been arrested and sent to Guantanamo Bay. Okay. Now, that's a problem because he frequently goes on television. Right. And so how can those two things both be true? So you're forced to confront an absurdity. And so the person I was talking to said, Ah, that person that you see on TV is not Joe Biden. That is a clone of Joe Biden. Mm. But that's an absurdity because that is not how cloning works. You don't clone an <laughs> a, a hundred-year-old man and get another hundred-year-old man. This
0: is Nathan's pet peeve with cloning.
1: This is what really you start me as with a baby. Yeah. Even the clone is a baby first. The clone has to be a baby first. And so then it generates like this one absurdity that Biden has been sent to Guantanamo Bay. It generates these other absurdities that, no, this one is a clone, which generates the absurdity that we have this capacity to make fully grown old man clones who already speak English and and walk and, and all these other things. But it doesn't stop there. Not only do absurdities generate more absurdities to protect the original absurdity, but I would also argue that there's a threshold of absurdity that when met encourages atrocity.
0: Oh, Okay, that took a
1: turn. Oh, yeah. It it takes a sinister turn. Because where does this go? Like, look at the Biden example. Rather than saying, oh, he's like a mediocre and kind of confused old man. No, no, no. He is a clone. So we have this cloning process, which means that a bunch of people out there are clones, which means that they're not humans, which means that they should be basically tracked down and eliminated. Because they're not really humans.
0: Yeah. I mean, that is certainly a danger of any belief system that posits that there is a a set of humans and then a set of humans who are not really humans, that is really a very big danger. I've encountered recently this idea that actually it is part and parcel of any ideological system that we have, for whatever reason, become identified with, that there is some resilience in our psychology that actually this is how it's supposed to work. Like our inner life is not set up such that we're going to change our mind every second all the time, even when in retrospect, maybe there was evidence enough to suggest that, you know, we should have.
1: Well, I would agree. In fact, I would say this isn't a question of intelligence. Mm. If, if there's anything that I have noticed from studying cults, as we have, is that an intelligent person is better at defending their absurdities. right. Because they're clever and they're smart. Right. And so their brain is very good at coming up with explanations and justifications for absurdities that maybe somebody like me, who's less intelligent, I would have to say, I got to let go of this belief because it doesn't make any sense. If I was smarter, I'd be able to think, I can think of some clever like tap dancing I can do to hold on to this belief system despite the absurdity.
0: It's funny you should say that because there's actually evidence or, or, or research to suggest that critical thinking strategies are more important for intelligent people because they're the ones who are more ready to their ideas and are are more obstinate when you try to change their minds. And they're
1: better at defending them. And they're better at defending them. To other people and to themselves. Exactly. Yeah. So that's what we're talking about today. We're going to be talking about some absurdities. And we're going to be talking about how those absurdities generate more absurdities. And and, atrocities. And atrocities. Okay. And I'm going to add another bit to my thesis. All right. When you have a situation that is rife with absurdity and atrocities, then what you have is a situation where it's really easy for scammers to move in. Right, right, sure. And I think that is crucial. This idea that there are some people who are deliberately scamming, who are yep. taking advantage of belief systems. And in a situation where you're you're surrounded by like absurd notions, scamming becomes extremely easy to do. Yep. So this particular story begins at the end of the world. Okay. I think a lot of our stories begin at the end of the world, so I should be more specific. Mm. All right, so let's place us historically. Uh, This end of the world that we're talking about was in England at the dawn of the 17th century. Okay. So things have been going reasonably well for England at this point. They were under the rule of one of the all-time Hall of Fame monarchs, Queen Elizabeth I. Yeah, okay. And the Elizabethan era had been a relatively peaceful one internally, like relatively. Mm. Uh, before she was crowned in 1558, England had been torn apart by civil wars between different royal factions and different uh, religious beliefs and the Protestant and the Catholics. Like, that that had all been going on. But under her reign, she more or less settled, more or less temporarily, the religious question in as much as it could be settled.
0: Okay and settling the religious question is coming to a compromise between this strife between Protestants and Catholics that's been raging in England as well as in continental Europe for like the last 50 or more years.
1: Yeah, basically by saying how much how much influence should the pope have in our country? Mm. Cuz there were some people saying none at all and some people saying it the, the pope should have all the right. cuz he's, he's God's he's God's big guy. Yeah. What Queen Elizabeth did was she strengthened the Anglican Church and abolished the Pope's jurisdiction over England. So, like, sort of put a, a tamp down on on the religious conflict briefly. It'll come back, of course. Sure. She built up the Royal Navy, which protected England's shores from invasion, even from the dreaded Spanish Armada. A Spanish Armada,
0: which was this big fleet of Spanish ships that were coming to invade England.
1: Yeah. So, economically, the country was booming. This was in part because of monies raised by participating in sanctioned piracy. Right. Uh, also, the That's selling— That's
0: basically robbing, like, French and Spanish ships, right? Yeah,
1: exactly. But doing it kind of like on the down low. Yeah. They aren't it... flying the flag of the Royal Navy, right. but they're pirates who are working for the Royal Navy, <laughs> so you got, like— And the other thing that was terrible that, uh, that was contributing to the English economy was the selling of human beings via the Atlantic slave trade. Okay. Because history is the worst. The English didn't even fight... During her reign, the English didn't even fight that much with the French. If you can imagine that. Because the English are always fighting the French.
0: Yeah, the the English and the French in this period is like cats and dogs. Yeah. They're just... They don't get each other. They don't like each other. They're quite similar in a lot of ways.
1: That's why they're fighting. Exactly. But (laughs) during Elizabeth... During her reign, they didn't fight as much as they normally did. And you had... like Culturally, you had Shakespeare putting on plays... You had Edmund Spencer writing poems.
0: Wow. Look at you coming Quite up with time. another cultural reference besides Shakespeare.
1: Yeah. And I do that because <laughs> a friend of ours is a, uh, an expert in Elizabethan pamphlet literature. Right. Now, he doesn't listen to the podcast. Okay. But his partner does. Hi, okay. Lisa. <laughs> so England had partially avoided some of the horrors that were going on in continental Europe that we've talked about before. I mean, compared to Germany or France, there, were, there weren't there were very many flare-ups of witch trials mm. in England, uh, which, of course, are often followed by flare-ups of witch burnings. There were still people tortured and murdered for being witches in England under Elizabeth. In 1563, Elizabeth had signed an anti-witchcraft law that was particularly hard on anyone who used fortune-telling to predict the queen's death. Right. So that's very specific. She okay. was doing it for a very specific reason. So under Elizabeth, you had 535 people tried and 82 people murdered for being witches. But the queen had her own court magician and occultist named John Dee, who did divination as part of his duties. So it wasn't like as hardcore as we saw on the continent, Mm. where basically anything even a little bit witchy was going to get you set on fire. Mm. However, as the 16th century approached, things were looking grimmer. There had been several bad growing seasons in a row, Food shortages were becoming more common, and inflation was starting to rise. All of these things are going to lead to, obviously, social strife and some conflict. The wars with Spain had drained the nation's wealth. The Queen herself... I mean, I don't know if, if long-time listeners have noticed this, but I don't think much of royal families. <laughs> I think my mom stopped listening as a result. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, I, I apologize, Lee's mom. But I don't apologize, because I stand by this. When the state is embodied in a person, as the person starts to go, as all human beings do, your state is going to go. And so when Elizabeth is sort of young and vital, you've got this young and vital state. But, I mean, at this point, Elizabeth is getting on in years. She's getting older and weirder. Uh, She's been wearing, like, thick, thick layers of lead-based makeup for decades. Mm. Like inches of, of, of makeup. It was horrifying, which is not an ideal situation for a person's physical or mental health. Right. Basically, it's going to make you a little bit not well. And this is one of the many, many, many issues with basing your government on royalty as they go. So goes the kingdom and she's on her way out. And it was in this time period when things were getting worse and it seemed as though some terrible disaster was just over the horizon ...that two events take place that are going to shape much of what happened next. They're both in 1589. In 1589, there was a bad storm off the coast of Denmark. Okay. And in 1589, a maidservant in North Berwick, Scotland... ...was sneaking out of the home of her employer.
0: You know, it's funny. I sometimes think about history in this way. Like, at the moment you do something innocuous and uninteresting... But occasionally, those innocuous and uninteresting things that you do can have, like, massive repercussions.
1: Yeah, like a th- like maybe 999 times out of 1,000, they don't.
0: Yeah, or 9 million, or Nine 900 million. million. Yeah. But every now and then, like that
1: this... one that does. Yeah. So now, let's look at one of the most sinister conspiracy theories of all time. The claim that the devil was secretly working his evil through thousands of witches in order to bring about the end of the world. Okay. Right, so let's start with the storm. The king of Scotland at the time was James the 6th, the son of Mary Queen of Scots. Now, James was a bookish sort. Mm-hmm. He attempted to compensate for that by being an intellectual thinker. So James was married off to Anne, the daughter of Frederick II, the king of Denmark and Norway, and she was supposed to be shipped over from Copenhagen mm-hmm. so that they could, you know, carry out their their Make babies. Make babies, which is one of the main reasons to have royal families, is to continue making more babies. It's
0: Yeah, it's like their only job,
1: Yeah, basically. basically. But that job gets interrupted because on her trip across the ocean to Scotland, they run into a terrible storm and had to go back. Okay. James actually goes over to Copenhagen, despite being quite bookish. This is like a pretty brave thing for him to do. He goes over to Copenhagen himself to pick her up, but also runs into a terrible storm that almost sinks his ship. Hmm. So there was a lot of discussion in Denmark as to what was causing the unfortunate storms that seemed almost designed to keep James and Anne apart. And the Danish Admiral Peter Monk argued that Christopher Valkendorf, who was the governor of Copenhagen, just hadn't outfitted the ships appropriately. Right. And that's why they almost sunk. Seems reasonable. But Valkendorf says, no, it wasn't that I did a lousy job. What really caused those ships to almost sink? Witches! It was witches. It wasn't me not doing a good job. It was witches doing this.
0: Man, if that, like, if that honestly is hanging out there as an excuse for all kinds of misdeeds. I'm going to use like, it. Exactly. Well, I didn't steal the money. It was
1: witches. Yeah. You were supposed to wash these dishes. I, I did. did. <laughs> witches.
0: Yeah.
1: Witches. Now, I want to take a quick aside because we're talking about weather here, which is a complicated phenomenon. But I want to talk about how easy it is for us to, like, ascribe intent to natural phenomena. Right, okay. How easy it is for us to see something that happens in nature and say, oh, no, no, there's intent behind this. Somebody did this. Right. This wasn't just a thing that happened. Somebody did this. Yeah,
0: but that's exactly the way we talk about it. We sort of anthropomorphize all these Non-conscious entities and treat them as though they actually, you know, have intention and desires and act like us.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so, when something sketchy happens, like hey, there's a couple storms that have interrupted us getting together. Those storms must be trying to keep us from getting together.
0: Yeah, there's an intention, and an somebody, intention. somebody's behind it, or it's some evil someone is will behind is behind it. it.
1: Yeah, and so, despite the storms, both King James and Queen Anne were able to eventually safely return to Scotland. Back in Copenhagen, meanwhile, a witch hunt begins to find the source of the storms. Hmm. But we're going to Scotland with Queen Anne and King James, so we're going to leave the Copenhagen witch hunt to carry on. Because there's another thing that's happened that we need to look at, and that is a maidservant has been sneaking out of her master's house. Right, okay. So as you recall, I said there was two things in 1589. So now let's talk about this North Berwick maidservant. Her name was Jilly Duncan and her employer was named David Seaton, and he was a deputy bailiff. Like a cop, basically. Yeah, okay. At this point, I would like to focus on a pamphlet that was printed in 1591 titled News from Scotland. This is where I'm getting a lot of this information from, although I've also cross-checked it with other historical sources. I'm quite confident that the pamphlet, in some areas, is very accurate. Okay. In some areas, wildly inaccurate. All right. So this pamphlet was probably written by uh, an advisor to King James named James Carmichael. And it goes into some detail regarding what happened with Joey Duncan and David Seton. Now, the full title of this pamphlet is News from Scotland, Declaring the Damnable Life and Death of Dr. Finn, a Notable Sorcerer, Who Was Burned in Edinburgh in January Last, 1591.
0: I love Which doctor was registered to the devil (laughs) that sundry
1: times preached at North Berwick Kirk to a number of notorious witches nope,
0: not, not, not gonna... with
1: the true examinations of the said doctor and witches as they uttered them in the presence of the Scottish king. What are... Discovering how Aww. they pretended to bewitch and drown his majesty in the sea coming from Denmark with such other wonderful matters as the like has not been heard of at any time. So what I was going to say... I'm done. Is... <laughs> so the details are as follows. In the town of Tranent, there was a deputy bailiff named David Seaton. He had a maid servant named Joey Duncan. And Duncan was known to be an accomplished healer who, quote, took in hand to help all such as were troubled or grieved with any kind of sickness or infirmity. That's kind of nice. Unfortunately, some of her healing was a little too good. And Seton started to wonder if she was practicing her healing craft through natural and lawful methods or through witchery. Hmm. And this is where this story kind of takes a terrible turn. Because you'll recall, at this time and place in history, being a witch didn't just mean that you were, you know, hurting people. Any kind of spell that you were casting at this point in history meant that you were a witch, and the fact that you were casting spells, or that people believed you were casting spells, made you evil, even if you were casting those spells to help other people out. Right, right, right. It isn't the effect, it's the action that makes you a witch, and also makes you sinful. Right. Because... If you were casting spells, you weren't just, you know, helping somebody out, helping somebody find something lost or, or help them with, with some sort of health issue. You were also then part of a larger conspiracy of witches who were working with the devil. Right. So not only did Seton want Duncan to confess to witchcraft, but he also wanted her to name the names of the other witches that were attending their witchy sabbat meetings. Mm-hmm. So the pamphlet goes on to describe the tortures that Seton then put Duncan through to try to get her to admit to being a witch. Hmm. So we are going to describe some tortures here. Okay. We're not going to get grotesque about it, but, I mean, torture is grotesque. Right. So first, Seton used ordinary interrogation techniques. Okay. So, you know, keeping her awake, not giving her any food. Oh, these are ordinary techniques. These are the ordinary techniques. Oh, God. Okay. Yeah. Uh, When those didn't work, or rather when they didn't force her to confess to being a witch, uh, he moved up to the Pillywinks. What's that? I mean, it, it sounds kind of cute and harmless. It sure does. It sounds like it's a child's game, but actually it's a device. It's comprised of two iron bars, about six inches long each, and they're connected by a screw. Okay. So it kind of looks like uh, a capital letter H. Okay. you got a bar and a bar and a screw in the middle that brings them further or closer apart. Uh Turning the screw would bring the two bars closer together until finally the top bar rested on the bottom bar. Mm -hmm. And the way that they'd be used is you would put a person's fingers in between the two bars. Okay. Is is this the thumb screws? This this is a thumb screw, only it's for the whole hand. Okay. And then you twist the bars closer and closer until the fingers broke, the knuckles separated, and blood started pouring out from underneath the fingernails. Ow. And you know, it's funny, when I was reading about this in great detail, I started thinking about hands. Yeah. And about how, like, that's basically how I manipulate the world. That's like, that is the mechanism through which I interact with the world. Yes. If you're fortunate enough to have working hands, it's like you you use them constantly and you just sort of, you take them for granted. Yeah. So after reading about this, I spent some time... Like a, a stone, like a stoned high schooler, like looking at my <laughs> hands and being like, oh man, that they are amazing. They're so delicate, they're so fine tuned.
0: Well, last summer, I broke two fingers on my left hand and they have not really healed. Yeah. Now, I'm not in any pain generally, but these are, again, often the unacknowledged consequences of this kind of stuff. Like you think torture has like a defined beginning and end. Right. You you
1: confess and then the torture stops.
0: If in the 1500s you've had all the fingers on both hands broken, that might follow you for the rest of your life.
1: Yeah, it really limits your interaction with the outside world. Yeah. It it sort of traps you in your body. Yeah. Uh, But it didn't work. Duncan still denied being a witch. Okay. I have a theory as to why. Why? I don't think she was a witch.
0: Yeah, but... Well, we're going to get to a whole section on this, but you know, this is where I might just say, sure, I'm a witch. I mean, I I wonder sometimes about what the value of resistance is. I thought about that often with the KGB stuff. It's like, look, you're going to the gulag anyway.
1: Right, as soon as you get picked up in the car, you're like, I'll just confess. Yeah, whatever. I'd
0: be like, whatever you want, I'll, I'll agree right now, and we could just do away with the whole torture and mutilation stuff, and I'll just go suffer my 10, 15-year sentence.
1: Sure, suffer a 10, 15-year sentence, but if Jilly Duncan is a witch, she is going to be strangled to death, and her body is going to be burned publicly.
0: Hmm. Is that the only
1: outcome? If at this point in history, if you are uh, if you are a confessed witch, then yes. If you are an unconfessed witch, then maybe you get burned without being strangled first.
0: Uh, okay.
1: And we're not even done yet. <laughs> so Duncan okay. denies being a witch. So Seton moves to a technique called thrawing. Throwing. Right. You wrap ropes around a person's head and then stick a lever into the ropes so that when you twist the lever around. Oh my around, God. Oh my Exactly. The ropes pull tighter and tighter on the person's skull. Okay. Duncan still didn't confess to being a witch. All right. Next, Seaton examined Duncan for devil's marks. And we talked about this in a previous episode. Anything from a freckle to a mole to a bruise and the chances of somebody in this time period going through their life without developing a scar or a freckle or something. It's pretty much... Right. And he found one on her throat. And it was at this point that Duncan confesses to being a witch and working in league with the devil. Sure, of course she did. Yeah, and now we should, I think, talk a little bit about the idea of the confession. Because this is something that, when I was young, I believed. If I heard that a person had confessed to a crime, I was very confident that that person had committed that crime. Because who would confess to a crime if you hadn't done it?
0: Yeah, I mean, that that certainly is how you would imagine things would go. It's how the legal system in most countries imagines things go. And so there are a bunch of people, like not insignificant amount of people, who are uh, serving very serious sentences, potentially even death sentences, for crimes that they did not commit. And there are various studies that suggest some number between about 13 to 20% of confessions are false confessions Oof. Um, now these studies you know they vary it does vary uh, depending on countries and the kinds of interrogation techniques that are allowed but that's a lot of people and again we're talking about crimes sometimes they're misdemeanors sometimes there's not a big deal and sometimes they're for murder or for or for very serious crimes and people's lives are ruined Generally, it's classed, and this goes back to a German psychologist, Hugo Münsterberg. They're finally, a German,
1: finally a German name. Finally, a German
0: name, who in the early 1900s uh, started worrying about this phenomenon and broke it down into there's, there being three types. There's the voluntary uh, false confession. There's the coerced, and I'll give a maybe I'll just give an example right now. So, the voluntary confession is something like where somebody wants notoriety.
1: And they, this does happen. Every time there's a serial killer, a bunch of people come forward to confess that they are the serial killer. Exactly. When they aren't.
0: When they're not. And one of the motion motivations might be notoriety. Another one might be something like dreams. Like it came to me in a dream that I should do this. And for whatever reason, that person's worldview is such that they need to act upon this. So there's all kinds of strange motivations.
1: Would altruistic motivations be in this category, whereas if you committed a crime but I don't want you to go to prison so then I confess?
0: Yeah, so there's the family stuff, exactly, where friends or families will sometimes take the heat for each other. But the point is the person confesses of their own free will. Mm -hmm. It is their choice.
1: But they didn't do it.
0: They didn't do it, but there are a, a whole range of motivations, like I want to protect my kid, I want to protect my spouse, I want to protect my friend, I want to become famous, God told me to do it in a dream, something like that, that could get somebody to volunteer a confession. And then there's the coerced compliant type. This is where somebody finds themselves in an interrogation where they can't handle the social stress in real life police interrogations It's a lot more than just an awkward social situation. It can be 20 hours in an interrogation room or, you know, the threat of this or or potentially in some cases things like uh, social isolation for long periods of time, you know, that basically you are coerced into taking what seems like the easier path uh, where you might even be told that you get to go home or you get to um, be reunited with your family. There will be no consequences.
1: Well, that's the classic cop lie, right? In an interrogation situation. It's like, listen, you want to go home? You tell us that you did it. You're back home by the end of the day.
0: Right? And you're like, okay, look, I mean, these guys, I can't prove it to them. They seem belligerent. They seem very difficult. They have authority. They have power. I just want to go home. I just want to go home. And that, that was, I was already saying that earlier. I'm like, why not just confess right to get go? Like yeah. you, 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 find yourself in this situation. Like, sure, I did it, whatever. Just, just let's get over this part. So I could see myself being susceptible to this one. Where I'm just like, you know, what 20 hours in, I don't care about convincing anybody that I'm right. I just want to go home and I haven't my life.
1: slept. I haven't eaten. I'm in exactly. this uncomfortable chair. Exactly. I'm exhausted. Exactly.
0: So, then and this is this is also a really interesting one. There's what is called the coerced internalization. And this is where Often through the same mechanisms that you've just described, Nathan, of loss of sleep, loss of food, loss of um, social interaction, fear, authority figures, all of this, you actually start to question whether they might not be right after all. Like, hey, maybe I did do this. and. Good Johansson, the, the researcher who really sort of has been working on this stuff, asks a really interesting question. He so, said, well, how long does this kind of delusional state last? Like, And it's usually only a couple of hours or days.
1: It's long enough to write a confession.
0: Right? Exactly. To then find yourself in a really messy situation. But by that time, it's too late. And you can't retract that confession. Even if you do, it stands in court that you did confess. And then if the court hears the person confessed and then later retracted it, what they really hear is the person confessed and changed their mind about whether they should have confessed,
1: right? And if it sounds strange that a, a sense of identity, like a person's personal identity, could be dismantled that easily, look into the Stanford Prison Experiment. Right.
0: Coerced internalization is when you, through coercion, persuade yourself or are persuaded that, in fact, you are guilty.
1: Now, so, so very quickly then, with the first kind of false confession, you know it isn't true, but there's some sort of benefit to you saying that it's true. That's right. In the second one, you know it isn't true, but you want the torture to stop. Right. And in the third one, you start thinking maybe it is true. Maybe it is true. But exactly, it isn't.
0: I thought this was interesting. Robert Hubert confessed to starting the Great Fire of London, and it is almost certain. That he did not do it, although he was tried, convicted, and executed for the crime.
1: Yeah. I mean, and at this point, I have to say, this is the only argument I need to be against the death penalty.
0: There are other arguments. Oh, my God. There are so many people who were sentenced for things, you know, where it's like, oh, this guy is sentenced because he happened to be near the crime scene. Or happen to have the same haircut as the criminal, or yeah, I mean just absolutely absurd stuff that gets people put away. And some of those might even go and provide a false confession with enough stress. Yep. If if all you want is a confession, it's pretty easy to get one then. Yeah. Right. And and like we say, you you nobody is able to resist torture. You can resist it for a little bit, but eventually everybody cracks. So yeah. it's just a matter of, do you crack today or tomorrow? Again, I would crack right away because I'll just save myself the bother. going to save us all a lot of time.
1: <laughs> so, I mean... So, so anyway... So Duncan such... confesses, but yeah. as we've seen... What's it worth now? What's it worth? Probably basically nothing. She was sent to prison and... While she was in prison, uh, she has continued to uh, be interrogated, and she names other members of her coven who met at these nightly sabbats. There was Agnes Sampson, who was an elderly midwife and healer. There was Dr. Finn, a schoolteacher, and man about town. Right, okay. And there were several others who were named and tried, of whom, according to the news pamphlet, some are already executed, the rest remain in prison to receive the doom of judgment at the King Majesty's will and pleasure. Mm. Ominous. So let's, let, let's look at Agnes Sampson, the elderly healer. So she's interrogated. She denies being a witch. The truth is, based on what we know of Sampson from the records, she probably was a witch in the sense of somebody who casts ritualistic spells and uses herbs and things like that. But she was probably unlikely to have been a witch in the conspiratorial sense in that she was secretly working with the devil to bring about the end of the world and meeting at these massive sabbats. But that's what the interrogators wanted to get from her, because that's what they believed was the case. Mm. They weren't trying to get the truth. They wanted the truth that they already believed to be confirmed. Right. So they shave off all of her hair. She gets the same thrawing treatment that Duncan had gotten. And when I say they shave off all of her hair, I mean all of her hair.
0: Right, okay. Eyebrows. Everything. Yeah.
1: After they find Devil's Mark on her body in a very sensitive area... Samson also confessed that she had attended a sabbat with over 200 other witches and that they had traveled across the sea in a boat that was shaped like a chimney and that the devil was shaped like a haystack and that all of the witches kissed the devil on his buttocks. Hmm. Now this sounds... Where
0: on the haystack is the butt?
1: I think like under the, one of the sides, I guess. I mean... Not not that circular center bit that... that's not a haystack, that's a hay bale. A hay bale, oh. A haystack is just a big pile. Just a pile, oh. Now, this all sounds like nonsense. It's because it's nonsense. I mean, Samson was probably just saying the most ridiculous things that she could imagine to try to put a stop to the torture, but the interrogators took it extremely seriously, and this confession was used against her at trial. Of course, as confessions are. She also confessed that there was a witch conspiracy to murder the king by drowning him on his way to Copenhagen by causing the storm. So okay. there I you see. go. Now there's we, the connection. There's the connection.
0: The, all the way back to that storm and the housemaid that, that was leaving at night. Yep. It's all coming together. I just thought I'd remind the audience that that's we right. actually oh, yeah, did right, a make storm. that. Yeah, <laughs> we actually did come back and make that connection.
1: So you might be asking, well, how do you make a storm? According to the tortured testimony of Agnes Sampson, you take a cat, you name the cat King James because that's your target. Right. Okay. Again, the sort of as-above-so-below thing where you Mm -hmm. have copies and mimics and stuff like that. Then you take some body parts from a human corpse, uh, genitals, knuckles, tie them to the cat, and then you get in a giant sieve. So, you know, like a sieve that you would, like a colander that you would use to to strain spaghetti. Okay. You get in a giant version of that and sail it out into the sea. And then you throw the cat into the ocean. You know...
0: I'm suspicious of this.
1: That it might not work?
0: Yeah, because, um, not because of the magic element, mm-hmm. but I don't believe that the narrator actually has tried to handle cats at all yeah i'm trying because to imagine tying t- knuckles yeah, to a try cat. try tying some body parts to a cat and see what happens to your face like they are not <laughs> docile little declawed kitten things that you see on TikTok. so the idea of like sailing
1: a sieve <laughs> full of holes out into the ocean you're like oh that <laughs> seems kind of sketch but tying something to a cat <laughs> yeah no you will lose both eyes trust yeah. me yeah again it's 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 nonsense but it was about this time that King James himself becomes involved with the interrogation, because now there is a massive plot against him right. by this massive conspiracy of witches. So when Samson's asked why the king was so hated by the conspiracy of witches, Samson replied that it was because King James was the devil's greatest enemy on earth, a claim that King James would have considered like quite flattering. Yeah. Like, that's amazing, because if you were the devil's main enemy, that makes you very good. Right. And very important. And James was already convinced that the end of the world, as prophesied in the book of Revelation, was imminent. And often referenced to other people, the warrior mentioned in Revelation nineteen eleven to sixteen. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. We are more likely to believe those things that we want to believe. And James wanted to believe that there was a massive witch conspiracy against him, since that would make it more likely that he was that holy warrior mm. in the book of Revelation. So the news from Scotland, this pamphlet, then goes on to describe the interrogation of Dr. Finn, the schoolmaster, and man about town. So for him, they start off with the thralls. Oh. Uh, the crushing of the skull with ropes. Then his fingernails were removed with pliers. Dog. And replaced with, like, a sort of iron spikes. Mm. Then he was given the boots. Okay. The this, boots... Yeah, this does not sound good. What the is boots it? isn't good. And if you've already done the fingernails and then you're moving to something else... Right, yeah. The boots uh, is apparently an unbearable form of torture. Your legs That's are surrounded... I like having your fingernails pulled out. This one's worse. Your legs are surrounded by wooden frame, kind of like a crude wooden boot. And then wooden wedges are driven into the boots with a mallet. Oh,
0: my God.
1: Which crushes your foot and your ankle and your shin. you know, like, they
0: really had good
1: ideas when it came to torturing people. Yeah, they really had some terrible good ideas. If you survived the boot torture, as we talked about with the fingers before, like, you're not going to walk properly again. No. So after the boots, Dr. Finn confessed. (laughs) Yep. To being the note taker of the minutes of the sabbat. And the sabbat, of course, is this big witch meeting. Now, it's at this point of the pamphlet that things take an odd turn. So far, everything that was described has been in line with other contemporary sources. But at the end of this pamphlet, it tells a bizarre story that Dr. Finn apparently also confessed. So everything I've said so far is stuff that that happened, like the torture and the confessions. Those things happened. But then we have this story at the end of the pamphlet. Apparently, Dr. Finn was in love with a woman who didn't love him back. And the brother of the woman went to school with Dr. Finn. So, Dr. Finn told the brother he would promise to teach him without beating him. It's a, good, it's a good good, deal. If the brother would collect some of his sister's hairs and deliver them to Dr. Finn, the doctor would then make a love potion out of the hairs, forcing the woman to fall in love with him. So, the hairs that Dr. Finn needed were of a very specific and personal variety. So, the woman. Oh. So, when, when her brother was trying to collect them, the woman's like, What is yeah, happening? Like, yeah, What exactly. is going on here? So, according to the pamphlet, The mother of these two was also a witch. And so immediately figured out what was going on, that Dr. Finn was trying to get these hairs to make a a love potion. And so after beating her son for a while, she told him to bring Dr. Finn three hairs from the udder of one of their cows instead. (laughs) The brother brought the cow hairs to Dr. Finn, and Dr. Finn performed the magic ritual on them, only to find himself the target of a very amorous and love-struck cow, which started chasing him around the town.
0: I love the notion of witches pranking witches. Yeah. I love that.
1: But it's bizarre because at the same time we have this like true story of what's actually happening in the town. I don't know anymore what the true story is. They add this bizarre story about this guy getting chased around by a cow, which comes from like, that's a very old story. Is it? That's a classic story that's been around like hundreds of years before this and has been told over and over again. I feel
0: like I read it every year in a Canadian newspaper, but the cow is a moose.
1: Yeah, and same, same, same <laughs> basic idea. So that part of the story isn't true. What is true is that this event involved the arrest and torture of dozens of people, several of which were then strangled before their bodies were burned at the stake, including Samson and Dr. Finn.
0: You know, you can't get a moment's hilarity without it, like, immediately being followed by... And everybody died a horrible
1: death. I know. We had this nice cow story.
0: Yeah, it was going to be fun. It was going to be a joke. And no.
1: No, but then reality comes back in. So after the harrowing sea voyage, and after directly participating in the North Berwick Trials, King James is, like, now a true believer that he was the target of a devilish and apocalyptic conspiracy. And so in 1597, he writes and publishes a book called Demonology in order to explain and spread his beliefs about witchcraft. Uh, The book takes place as a dialogue between two characters, kind of like when Plato writes. Right. You have Epistemon, who believes in witches and is clearly meant to represent James himself. Okay. And you have Philomathus, who represents a sort of straw man version of a witch skeptic. Okay. I won't go into much detail with this book, because if you're curious about it, it's it's mostly going over the same ground as Kramer's work Hammer of Witches, which we talked about in an earlier episode. And clearly, we want another book like that, yeah, right? Yeah, because that book was so great. I will say that this book has way less rampant misogyny. Ah, okay. But that's a low bar, to right. be less misogynistic than The Hammer of Witches. Hammer of witches. And it's interesting that these books were so similar because, of course, Kramer was Catholic and King James was Protestant. Ah. but And yet, they shared witch beliefs. So the book's divided up into three parts. Part one is a description of magic in general. There are people who are used by demons to do the demons' dirty work. These are witches. And there are people who use demons to do their own dirty work. These are sorcerers.
0: Oh, that's an interesting distinction. Okay.
1: It is. And it's one that they really hash out in this book. And both kinds of people are in league with the devil and are part of this massive conspiracy. Why is he making this distinction? I think it's because using demons for your own purposes, this might be a bit of a surprise, was not always considered satanic. Oh, in the medieval period, we had the <clears throat> Testament of Solomon. Well, I was going to say, yeah. there
0: was the whole Solomon example.
1: Yeah, Solomon who, like, basically tricks demons into building a temple to honor God. In the 12th and 13th centuries, there were plenty of manuals circulating in Europe about how to conjure and control demons. And by demons, I mean fallen evil angels. What's interesting, though, is that all of these demonic magicians appeared to have considered themselves to be pious and observant Christians. Mm. So the idea of using demons wasn't considered... It, it didn't make you a bad Christian.
0: Right, right, right.
1: Because the demons were just another aspect of God's creation, and you weren't supposed to worship them. You were supposed to command them to do your bidding using God's favor as your protection. So if anything, if you're controlling a bunch of demons, you're a better Christian than most. Now, this wasn't mainstream Catholicism. It, okay. was, it was sort of mainstream, but it wasn't like proper Catholicism. St. Thomas Aquinas, for example, was against the practice. I see. Not because he thought it wouldn't work, but because he thought that the demons were only pretending to be at your command to trick you into sinning. So that's part one. Uh, Part two discusses the specifics of witchery. And again, it's similar to Kramer's earlier work. But I do have uh, a few questions that it raises that I wanted to sort of go over. So Philomathus, uh, he raises three objections to the existence of witches. All right. The Bible doesn't really mention them. (laughs) That's his first objection. That is his first objection. Okay. Uh, They could just be people with mental illnesses. Okay. And that if there really were all these witches out in these streets, wouldn't all the decent people have been killed by witches by now? Mm -hmm. So Epistemon, a.k.a. King James, responds that there are places in the Bible in which laws are mentioned against witchcraft. And certainly in the King James Bible, they're all over the place. Right. Uh, That people with mental illnesses are skinny, whereas many witches are fat. Really? That's the argument? That's his main argument there. Huh. And also, that people with mental illnesses are antisocial, and many witches are quite friendly and have a good time. Huh. Okay. It shows a real lack of understanding of mental illness, which is not that surprising considering the time period.
0: No, but it's just an interesting. Yeah, it's an inter- I, I'm often, I just get interested in the structure of arguments, which yeah. I realize is a very niche thing to be interested in.
1: Hey, you're preaching to the choir. And. Since that everything that happens on earth happens with God's permission, God wouldn't allow the witches to kill all the decent people. Okay. Although apparently he does allow them to kill some of the some decent people. Some people, yeah. Yeah, uh, again. Also, epistleman, King James, argues that the best way to get into God's good graces and protect yourself from witchcraft is to zealously and earnestly pursue witches. Uh-huh. And you can see how this is going to work. It's going to be a feedback loop. The people who were the most afraid of witches would then be more likely to accuse other people of being witches in order to protect themselves from the power of witches. Funnily, that does actually work in a perverse way. Because what you find
0: in the witch hunts and the witch trials where it gets really sinister like this, where people end up being murdered you generally have the community splitting into the accused or the accusers. Right, and which and side you want to be on. Exactly. And if that's the way things are going, it is better to start accusing people and being playing the role of, I am the victim of witchcraft, than to eventually be accused by somebody. So... There is this perverse logic that actually works in a strange way to keep you safe.
1: Yeah, which sort of turns into this perpetual motion machine of atrocities. Right. Uh, Epistemon also addresses the question of why more women than men are witches. Of course, Kramer went on at great length about right, that. Right,
0: right. That was like the point of his
1: book, yeah, right? It was, it was most of the book. And he agrees with Kramer and says it's because women are more naturally frail than men, which is also how the serpent deceived Eve in the Garden of Eden.
0: Well, I was going to say, doesn't that account for... This misogynistic view, with uh, sort of baked into certain versions of Christianity, that just there is this higher hierarchical difference between men and women. Men are better because they were not initially deceived by
1: Satan. Yeah, because Eve and screwed up. Everything, Thanks, Eve. every
0: bad thing that happens to you Eve. is Eve's fault.
1: Yeah, or Pandora, depending on your. Well, we're talking Christian on your on your mythology.
0: Yeah, we're talking Christians. So yeah. it's all Eve's fault.
1: There's another passage in this section that I find fascinating, and this gets back to my original point about absurdities generating absurdities. What do you do when the theory you believe in has internal inconsistencies or just things that can't possibly be true? In order for this to be a massive conspiracy, the witches have to gather in large numbers. Right. Uh, there were supposed to be over 200 people at the North Barrack Sabbat. But this raises an important question. How do they all get there? Hmm. And, and back home so quickly in an age where the fastest possible movement is the speed of a horse.
0: Now, is there a mention made whether this is an actual physical event?
1: This is physical. This is physical. This one's physical. And I don't know where you're going.
0: Right. Because they, they, they might their spirits might just get into the bodies of animals and be transported at night.
1: Yes. Whereas King James says that is clearly absurd. Ha! I see. Okay. Because that's complete nonsense. That's nonsense. The what devil was... might trick you into thinking you've done that, but you're uh, not doing that. Uh, like obviously you can't get into a bunny and run to the sabbat. Like, come on, let's right. be serious here. Right, okay. So what actually happens? <laughs> well, what they do is they the witches make a kind of ointment with the bodies of the babies they've murdered, and they apply that ointment to broomsticks. Uh-huh. And then using the power of the devil, they fly on their broomsticks to the sabbat, mm. even if it's hundreds of miles away. Mm. But that also generates more absurdities. It's like, okay, well, how do they get there? They fly on broomsticks. Oh, but then James says, but, but then how could they breathe? Because there was this belief that lasted actually until the invention of quick trains that if you were going too fast, you wouldn't be able to breathe and you'd die. In fact, King James believed that if you fell off a cliff, you'd be dead by the time you hit the ground from suffocation. Huh. It's not true, but that's what they believed.
0: That's interesting.
1: So then he's faced with this other problem. It's sorry, like,
0: is, sorry, I'm just curious. Is the idea that
1: like All that air rushing by, you can't, you you can't, can't get it. You any. can't get any of it. It's going by too fast. <laughs> I like it. So now we have another problem. Okay, it's like, well now we've gotten them there quickly, yeah. but now we have to but how are they breathing? Right. Not only that, like why don't we see the evening sky filled with flying witches? Right. So we need some more absurdities to generate to to generate in order to protect our previous absurdities. Hmm. So according to James, the answer is they must travel in short hops. Uh, Hold your breath, up in the air, really fast, great back down. Right, okay. And the devil thickens the air so that people on the ground can't see the flying witches.
0: I mean, I honestly think that the spirit getting into a mouse is starting to sound a bit more rational.
1: I mean, either way, absurdities generate absurdities. right, right, right. I think we'll get into some spirit travel in a future episode. Okay. So part three gets both metaphysical and practical. Metaphysical because it explores the relationship between God and demons. Like Kramer and Hammer of Witches, James argues that demons can only carry out their evil work with the permission of God, and God does this in order to test and punish people. Which means that if there is a witch conspiracy, God is in on the witch conspiracy. And this was the whole thing that the witches were supposed to solve. If you go back
0: one or two yeah, episodes... there was the problem of evil. There was the problem of evil and why... You know, does an all-powerful, all-knowing God allow for evil? Well, you have the, the, the existence of freedom, and then there is a segment of the population which makes the wrong choice. But now we're all back here again.
1: But now God's in on it. Now God's... I mean, if, if he's an omniscient being, then he's in on every conspiracy. Yeah. He knows who killed JFK.
0: <laughs> should
1: ask. And it's practical, this chapter, because it discusses the appropriate way to punish a witch. Okay. The answer is fire. Fire. Burn them all. Since this punishment is so brutal and gruesome, and the accusation so vile of accusing somebody of being a witch, innocent people would therefore be protected by God, who would never allow innocent people to be defamed and burned in that way. What does that mean? James is arguing that if you're accused of being a witch, you're a witch. Okay. Because God wouldn't allow an innocent person to be accused of something so terrible. Yeah. That's...
0: That's trouble. That's trouble. And again... Makes a lot of sense to accuse rather than be accused at this point. Yeah,
1: you got to get on the accusing train real quick. Real quick. So I should point out for our Scottish listeners, the modern government of Scotland disagrees with all of this.
0: (laughs) The English government, however, they're Uh, not uh, so sure.
1: (laughs) In March of 2022, uh, only a couple months ago from when we're recording this, the government of Scotland officially apologized for torturing and murdering approximately 2,500 people between the 1500s and 1700s.
0: They apologized last month.
1: Well, like a couple months ago, yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, March of 2022. Feels a little late. I mean, sure, but better late than never. I guess. The influence of King James didn't end at the Scottish border, though, because in 1603, Queen Elizabeth finally succumbs to her lead makeup and sheds her mortal coil, Mm. and James... Becomes king of all of England. Right. And one of the first things he does, only one year later after becoming king, is he toughens up England's witch laws. Mm. So he's still got witches on the brain. He makes it a capital offense to carry out any sort of magic at all. And this 1604 uh, witch law was going to stay on the books until the 18th century. Wow. Interesting side note, there was a conspiracy against King James. Okay. But it wasn't supernatural, it was natural. It was the Catholics, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. It wasn't Satanists, it was Catholics. (laughs) The the ones they were worried about all along. Yeah, and it wasn't magic. It was gunpowder. (laughs) Right. So within a few years, witch hunts were on the rise in England under their new king. Understandably. Yeah, he's super into it. But was he super into it? Because James himself starts to become more skeptical after many of the accusations, like the big public ones, turn out to be hoaxes. In 1605, a 14-year-old girl accused three women in Abingdon of being witches and putting a spell on her, and James even spent his own money on the trial to assist the proceedings, but the girl confessed that she was faking her symptoms. Mm. In 1607, a four-year-old boy named John Smith began accusing a number of women of bewitching him, and he did this throughout his childhood, so he did Mm. this for years. By the time he was 13, nine women had been arrested and hanged due to his accusations. Oh my God, really? Yeah. Can you w- imagine being his nanny? Uh, it'd be terrifying. It'd be like being the nanny of the omen. It's like, what is is it?
0: Uh, there's horror movies that have this as a plot, like where you have a kid with a lot of power. Yeah. And then
1: suddenly, like, what a nightmare that turns into. Great Twilight Zone episode about it. Okay. The kid who wishes everybody out into the cornfield. So James was impressed enough to be like, oh, I got to summon this boy. He is truly like like me. He is a crusader against right. evil. And so he summons the boy to talk to him in person and realizes almost immediately that the boy was lying and faking his symptoms. And then the boy confessed, yeah, I I have been. So the remaining women who hadn't been executed were released. Hooray. Although one had died in prison. Yeah. Uh. Now, James was shaken enough by this that he allowed an author named Ben Johnson to write a play titled The Devil is an Ass, which mocked the idea of devilish conspiracies and magic.
0: Oh, and Ben Johnson's no like No, just
1: nobody. No, he's no hack. He was like a big... He was a big guy. Yeah. But despite James's increasing skepticism, the trials continued because you don't necessarily get to control what you start.
0: Right. Yeah, there's all this social inertia.
1: Exactly. So James is starting to become more and more skeptical, even as his country is getting more and more into it. Yeah. In 1612, there was a very high-profile case in Lancashire in which a number of people were prosecuted for witchcraft. The prosecution's star witness was Janet Device the nine-year-old daughter of one of the accused. Ten people were hanged as a result of that trial, and one person died in custody. By the end of his life, James was increasingly voicing his doubts about the usefulness of the witch trials. He died in 1625, and immediately his death became part of a Spanish disinformation campaign trying to get people to believe that his death was a poisoning by anti-Spanish advisors who were trying to prevent James from brokering a diplomatic deal with Spain. You can't look at history without just... Like, tumbling over conspiracy theories. Conspiracies are, like, really central to history. It's
0: what I've realized.
1: Yeah. So, James died before he was able to take his role as the warrior on the white horse leading the forces of good over the devil during the apocalypse. But if he'd only held on for a few more years, he could have seen a localized apocalypse because the clock was really ticking on all the political, religious, and class tensions in England at this point. Mm. And then it explodes in the English Civil Wars. Now, as it turned out, James's anti-witch laws outlived both James's belief in witchcraft and James himself. In 1633, in Lancashire again, a 10-year-old boy named Edmund Robinson had a story to tell. Apparently, he was using two dogs to chase a rabbit. When the dogs didn't catch the rabbit, he started beating them, and the dogs turned into a woman and another boy. They tried to bribe Robinson to keep quiet about it, but when he refused, the boy turned into a horse, and then they took him to a witch's sabbat and then brought him back home again.
0: Sounds a lot like a dream.
1: That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> that sounds like a dream.
0: I've had dreams like that. Oh, yeah. I'm talking to somebody who turns into somebody and then else. And then they're a horse. And, and then, we like, do, and then we you do this, go to a thing. And yeah. Then,
1: yeah, it sounds, it, I think it sounds, exa- it's, it's dream logic. But Robinson's father vouched for his son. And so now we're off to the races. Right, right, with right, sure. another big witch trial. So the kid didn't know the names of any of the witches who were either at the sabbat or in this dream. So this is a good idea he was authorized to go around the county picking out the women that he recognized. Oh, dear. And he would be given money for each one he found.
0: Ah, yeah.
1: So one of the women was named Janet Device. Okay. Who had the same name, was in the right area, and the right age to have also been the child who had condemned 11 people to death at a witch trial a decade earlier. Uh Uh-huh. We can't be certain, but it would be a heck of a coincidence. And so James was dead by this time, but his son, King Charles I, interviewed the accused witches and discovered very quickly that this boy also lying. Sure. Shocker. And that his father had put him up to it in order to make a quick buck. Yeah. The father was imprisoned for this crime, and the witches were exonerated. Uh, Although some of them stayed in prison anyway, because while they were falsely imprisoned, they had built up a bunch of debts. (laughs) (sighs) Yeah. But all of this pales. In comparison, these scammers were nothing. They were amateurs compared to who I'm going to end this podcast on. All right. The guy who's about to show up on the scene, the witch finder general Matthew Hopkins. God, okay. So by 1642, the apocalypse has happened. The political, religious, and economic strains have sent England collapsing into civil war. And in 1644, we see the beginning of the brief but horrifying and murderous career of Matthew Hopkins, who called himself the witch finder general. It's important to note, he called himself that. Right. The state didn't call him that. Religious authorities didn't call him that. He just... It's like that guy in high school who gave himself his own nickname. Yeah. No, no, I'm T-Bone. <laughs> so you're not T-Bone. He called himself the Witchfinder General. He had no official ability to do anything that he did. Okay. Except for just sheer force of will. So, together with his associates, the witch pricker, John Stern, and Mary Goody Phillips, Hopkins traveled around the eastern part of England, making his services available to towns for a hefty fee. Mm. And he had very specific methods. So if you called Hopkins to your town, this is what he would do. First, he would identify a vulnerable member of the community. Like, ideally, you want an old and poverty-stricken woman. His first target was a one-legged beggar named Elizabeth Clark, whose mother had been hanged as a witch already. Okay. Ideal. Even better is if it's a lonely old woman with pets. Okay. Because the fact that she had pets could be used as evidence of witchcraft, because Hopkins argued that the pets were like go-betweens in between the witch and Satan. Right, right. Uh, For example, Clark had a white kitten named Hodel, a cat named News, a rabbit named Sack and Sugar, (laughs) and two dogs named Jarmara and Vinegar Tom.
0: I like these names.
1: Yeah, that, that part of the story, you know, when you're coming across these old stories and we've got the benefit of being in the future and so, you know, they don't really get to you yeah the idea of this old woman having a a dog named Vinegar Tom. Yeah, it made her real to me. Yeah, and then I got really sad.
0: It is sad. I was actually thinking it's like the animal lovers in the community. they like, were
1: definitely the most vulnerable.
0: They're like these gentle people living alone by themselves out of the way,
1: yeah, with their cats
0: and their rabbits. and those are, yeah, I was just talking to a friend of mine yesterday how this is sort of my escapist fantasy. and to think that, My folks,
1: you know, like like my spiritual brethren are being persecuted. Yeah. I mean, if you were doing that back then, you're quite suspicious. Yeah. So after you find the the vulnerable member of society with pets, you have the person stripped and thrown into prison where they'd be forced to march around with no food for days at a time or sit cross-legged without moving for days at a time. Hmm. Then if they still refuse to confess to witchcraft, they would be swum. And I think this is probably something that people have been waiting for the whole time we've been talking about the witch trials. Okay. The the witch dunking. Yes. Testing to see if they're a witch by throwing them in water. Yeah. But there's more to it
0: because it's important how you determine whether you are or are not a witch. Because, you know, as we've been talking, the whole time I've been wanting some kind of a falsifiable experiment yeah. where if witches are real... Test. There must be some way of just establishing this, mm-hmm. like, without a doubt, right? So now we have one. Now we finally have one. We have a test that establishes whether you are or are not a witch. So how does the test work?
1: Well, the first thing that happens mm-hmm. is your arms and legs are tied together with your thumbs tied to your big toes. Okay. Then a long rope is looped around your waist, and uh, you get thrown into a river. hmm And you have a man on either side holding on to each end of the rope that's looped around your waist. Mm. Now, if you float, that meant that the water was rejecting you. Mm. And the reason the water was rejecting you is because you're a witch. You were not baptized. So you rejected water in the form of baptism. And now water is rejecting you. Of course. Makes perfect sense. And you were therefore a witch if you didn't drown. Right. So the only way
0: you'd establish the fact that you are
1: innocent is by drowning. Yes. But, I mean, but then you were innocent. So you have that going for you. However... And what happens if you are a witch? Well, then they haul you out, and then they strangle you, and then they burn you. Right, okay. The main thing, however, deciding on whether you sank or floated was not whether you were a witch or not. It was how the two men on the shore handled the rope. Oh. They could make people float, and they could make people sink. Depending on what they wanted. Because think about it. If you pull the rope tighter, you stay up at the surface. Right. If you put more slack in the rope... Congratulations, you're, not a, you're now a drowned innocent person. If they want you to float, you're going to float. Right, okay. Uh, they also looked for devil's marks. This is something that has been done yeah. before, marks that wouldn't bleed when stabbed. But Hopkins had a, put, uh, had a bit of a twist that he put on it. Okay. Because the idea is if you stab one of these marks and they don't bleed, then it's a uh, devil's mark and then you're a witch. So to sort of to assist with this, Hopkins used a trick knife with a retractable blade. Oh, Really? But it's okay, because he's working for God. But he's working for God, I suppose. So after just two years of this, Hopkins had managed to get over 100 people hanged. Okay. And had made a tidy profit while doing so. However, there was a bit of a backlash against his witch-finding. In particular, there was a Puritan cleric named John Gall, who was horrified enough by Hopkins' activities that he started giving weekly sermons preaching against him. Okay. Okay. And he also wrote an entire book about it during the height of Hopkins' Reign of Terror titled Select Cases of Conscience, Touching Witches, and Witchcraft.
0: Hmm. That's a much
1: shorter title. It is. It's much pithier. Now, Gall didn't go so far as to argue that witches didn't exist. For good reason. Because, I mean, who's going to be arguing that witches don't right, exist? Right, right, right. You're a witch Only at Only witches, point. exactly. But he argued that the methods used to detect witches were flawed and caught up far more innocent people than guilty ones. And because of that, and I love this. Maybe the devil wasn't working his will through witches, but through the witch finders. Hmm. Maybe it was in the devil's interest for people to remain in fear, ignorance, and superstition. And the witch finders were doing the devil's work in that respect better than almost anyone else.
0: Does, does this by any chance lead to a comeuppance for the general witch finder? I, w- witch finder general? I
1: wish it did. And in fact, people, there's a common belief that what happened with Hopkins is that he was accused of being a witch. Right. And then he was swum and then he was drowned. Okay. That's sort of like the urban legend that grew up around this. That's not what happened. He did drown. Oh. But he drowned in his own lungs of pneumonia.
0: Oh, I see. Okay.
1: So, I mean, that's not as good a story. No. I mean, before that happened, he put out his own book in response. It wasn't nearly as well argued or written, but this did bring an end to his reign of terror. Only a few years after it began, but like I said, he did manage to kill 100 people. Mm. That is quite a reign. And fortunately, (laughs) that was the last time that innocent people were caught up in a witch trial. (laughs) The end. (laughs) Thank goodness. Thank goodness. What a relief. (laughs) Or am I incorrect?
0: Oh, well, well, we'll do more episodes.
1: Oh, nuts. Yeah,
0: I know.